Again, it's Ephesians 6, 10 through 13 on page 979. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. The word of the Lord. Good morning, guys. Welcome to Trailhead. My name is Steve. I am the lead pastor here. And we are working our way through the book of Ephesians, starting a new mini-series this week called Outfitted. Um, and the way we do that is we kind of just work our way through a book, and, and whatever we come across, we teach. Um, we find that it, it leads us pretty much into all the stuff we need to study in the Bible. And so this last section of Ephesians is focusing specifically on how God outfits us, equips us for the challenges of life. So we're going to dig in, okay? But first, let me just say Happy Easter. So this morning, we're looking at this idea of being outfitted for the challenge. You guys ever, like, um, started something without being fully prepared for it? The answer is yes, right? If, you, if you're wondering, the answer is yes. Um, and if you don't know about it yet, you're probably doing it right now, okay? Because a lot of times, you don't know until you're, you're you know, knee-deep in the thing before you realize that you were ill-equipped. When I was in high school, getting ready to graduate, my brother and I just on a whim decided to go camping. We weren't camping people. Um, didn't really know what we were getting into. And so we climbed into the car and, and we had heard about this river. Now I grew up in California, okay? Uh, lived near the Pacific Ocean um, my entire life up to that point, had never been out of California. But we heard about these people talking about Snake River in Arizona. And so we jumped in the car and we drove to Snake River. Horribly ill-equipped. <laughs> no idea. We didn't realize that, that Snake River was located in Hell's Canyon. That should have been a clue, of what we were getting into. I had a two liter bottle of soda and a bag of chips. That was my preparation for the weekend, seriously. Um, and, and my car, okay, it was 110 degrees in the shade. I didn't have sunscreen. I didn't even have like a full body of clothing, right? Uh, I got fried. Um, I was in the middle of the day lying under an RV, luckily not getting bit by snakes. I mean, it was just blistering. And thankfully there were some people camping there that took pity on me. Uh, and my stupidity, and they gave me some water. And had they not been there, honestly, it could have gone much, much worse for me. Um, and, and there are plenty of stories where people just walked ill-equipped into situations and honestly paid for it, right? Um, very famous example because it, it wrote a book and a, and a movie. Um, a young guy named Christopher McCandless um, graduated from college and decided he was just going to test himself. And, and so he just started on these series of adventures. That didn't end well for him. They, they, um, a guy named John Krakauer wrote a book called Into the Wild, which was later made into a movie about his life. And if you haven't seen the movie yet, I'm going to give away the ending. Sorry. Uh, but it's been out for a number of years. If you haven't seen it yet, it's your own fault. And so um, he basically decides he is going into the wilderness of Alaska. That's like the, the final great adventure for him, you know, before he, who knows, goes on with the rest of his life or whatever. Didn't do anything to prepare himself. That was part of his point. And before he realized he was in trouble, honestly, he was already past the point of no return. And um, uh, he, he ended up dying um, in, in, in the wilderness of Alaska. Um, and, and it was through, honestly, just being ill-prepared for the challenges. It was, it was a, a nonsensical death in many ways because he could have very easily survived had he taken very simple steps to prepare himself for the challenges that he was getting into, right? 
Um, but here's the deal, you guys. Many times the only difference between being able to stand up to a challenge or, or fail in that challenge is how well we're equipped for it. When we are equipped for a challenge, the challenge is less challenging. It just makes sense, right? When we're equipped for a challenge, we're able to go into it and, and um, navigate it with success. When we're not equipped, things don't go well. And sometimes, honestly, they end tragically. And we're a lot like McCandless in a lot of ways. We really have no idea what we're getting into with life. A lot of times, by the time we realize we're in over our heads, we're way past the point of no return. We're already deep in trouble and, and have a difficult time seeing our way out. You know? But here's the deal, you guys. God hasn't left us on our own. God has not left us to our own devices. He doesn't just say, you know, go through life and, and maybe at the end you'll, you'll find your way. Those of you who are smart enough or strong enough or, or, or resourceful enough. God has gone to great extremes and has paid a great price to equip us for the challenges of life so that we can be prepared, right? So we're going to take a look at how God, through the good news of Jesus, his death, burial, and resurrection, through his work, um, we call the gospel. That word gospel simply means good news or a message of victory, right? Through the gospel, he outfits us to stand, to stand in the challenges of life without getting knocked off our feet, without being destroyed. Here's the deal, you guys. If God is strong enough to defeat sin and death, and raise Jesus from the dead, I think he's probably strong enough to equip you to stand. I think he's strong enough to help you face the challenges that are threatening you. And maybe you're there now. Maybe you're in that place of, of being undone where things are coming unraveled and you're seriously trying to figure out how you're going to make your way through it. Maybe you're not there. Maybe you've never been there. It's going to come, okay? It's going to come. And, that, and that's not pessimism. That's reality. Um, and so we need to prepare ourselves in advance, right? So let's take a look at our text. We're going we're gonna to dig into our text a little bit. I encourage you to keep your Bible open. I'm going to be referring to it several times as we go through. Um, and I encourage you to take a look as we go through. So verse 10, chapter 6, verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Now he begins with that word finally because this is the conclusion of the letter. This is our, our 30th message in Ephesians. Um, I've loved it. It's been a great study as we've gone through. It's been a super in-depth study about how God is on a mission to redeem and restore, right? To, to basically redeem what has been sold into slavery, to purchase it back, to, to, to take what is broken and make it whole, what is hurt and to heal it, what is dead and bring it back to life, and restore it to its original purpose so that it can, it, can, it can experience what it was created to experience. And, and of course, that includes us, right? And, and that's the story we've been looking at. We get to the end of this, of this letter, and Paul says, look, finally, I have one final word for you. After we've explored everything God has done and what that means for, for your life up to this point, here's my, my final word to you, and it's a command. You need to be strong. You need to be strong. Now, this is not a call to self-sufficiency. A lot, of, a lot of, honestly, people read it that way. And honestly, that's, that's the heart of religion, if you want to go there. Religion basically says, be strong, be right, look right, act right, dress right, speak right, right? Put on the right exterior, and then you'll be okay, right? And the idea there is what they're saying is, is basically be strong for the Lord. But that's not what the text says, is it? Prepositions are incredibly important, Right? I'm an old school English teacher. Prepositions are important. It doesn't say be strong for the Lord. What does it say? 
Be strong in the Lord. Do you see the radical difference? This isn't about your performance for God. It's about you resting in God's performance for you. Paul's final command is be strong in the Lord, not for the Lord. It's not about you being more religious or, or behaving better or getting more self-disciplined or white-knuckling it or, or, or putting... It's not about that at all. It's not about you putting together your record. It's about you resting in His record, right? It's saying rest in God. Be strong in the strength of His might. Stand in Him. Now, appeals to strength um, bookend this letter. In the very beginning of Ephesians, in chapter 1, Paul prayed for the Ephesians. And in that prayer, he prayed that they might have the eyes of their hearts enlightened to the power of God. In fact, take a look. I've got it on the verse, on the screen. It says this, I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. Pause there. What Paul is saying to the Ephesians, hey, you Christ followers, hey, you people who believe the gospel, hey, you people who are self-identified Christians, you don't get it yet. You don't see it clearly yet. You've seen it some, but you need to see it more. So I'm going to pray that the fog is lifted. I'm going to pray that, that that thing that you think you see, but don't really see clearly, you come to see it more clearly. And there are several things that he prays about. And I'm just going to isolate the one here because I don't want to go back and re-preach that sermon. But here's what he says at the end of that. Jump back in the verse with me. I pray that the eyes of your heart might be enlightened so you can see what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. He prays that our eyes might be opened to the power that is made available to us as followers of Christ. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead. If you think about it, power is often associated with things that are threatening. Most of the things that we're afraid of are associated with a misuse or an expression of power, right? You don't want to walk down a dark alley in a bad part of the city at night. Why? Because you're afraid that, that someone will exercise power, right? Or demonstrate power in a destructive way. And often we measure power by how destructive it can, it can be, right? We measure power in its, its, um, its destructive nature. The, the most powerful thing we've created is a tool of mass destruction. And and that's how we measure power. But but God is so powerful. He doesn't measure his power by what he can destroy. He measures his power by what he can create. His power is not demonstrated in an explosion. His power is demonstrated in a whisper. Because in a single word, he creates. Let there be light. Let there be life. A single whisper, and Jesus rises from the dead. God's power is on an exponentially different plane because he is, in fact, the source of all power, the definition of power. God's strength is so strong that he can bring life out of death. The power in which God calls us to stand is the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. The same power 
that we are, as followers of Christ, supposed to stand in is the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. Now, today is Easter. Surprise, surprise. Uh, the day we celebrate the resurrection of, of Jesus Christ. And a lot of you are here, honestly, because it's Easter. Easter is one of those big holidays, right? Christmas and Easter, where a lot of people are like, okay, I'm going to go to church um, for Easter. And that's awesome. I'm glad you're here and I welcome you to that. And I know that some of you who come to church on Easter because you're invited or because family invites you, you honestly are a bit skeptical of the resurrection. I don't blame you. And I'm not surprised, right? I mean, anybody here seen somebody come back from the dead? It doesn't happen every day. And in fact, it's so unusual, it's incredibly remarkable to think that it could happen. When things die, they stay dead, right? Unless you're reading a Stephen King novel. I mean, things just don't come back, right? And so if you're skeptical, I get it. But I'm going to challenge you to consider the evidence. I'm obviously a follower of Jesus, Um, and, and as a follower of Jesus, um, I follow in faith. I have faith in God. I trust God. But what you need to understand is that my faith is actually founded on a rational framework. There's rational, intelligent, intellectual foundations on which I build my faith. Faith is not counter to reason. Faith is, in fact, founded on reason. And I try to share those frameworks. I try to share that understanding with people um, whenever I get the opportunity. And I'll sit down with people who are unbelievers and who are skeptical, and, and, and I share with them my story. I wasn't raised in a Christian home. I became a believer when I was 17, and I talk about all the things that, that were kind of the defeater beliefs for me, the things that got in the way of, of me believing in Jesus and all of that stuff. And, and I try to persuade them that what I believe is, in fact, rational. In fact, challenge them with it. And part of what I do is I I, I tell them that the burden of proof, when it comes to Jesus, the burden of proof isn't just on me. A lot of people, when we sit down, they assume, okay, I don't have to believe this unless you convince me. What you need to realize is that you share the same burden of proof because you have the same evidence in front of you that I have. You need to find a way to explain it. I look at it, And it persuades me to a rational structure to understand and believe the resurrection. And I don't have time this morning to unpack it all, but I want to unpack some of it. There was a scholar by the name of Gary Habermas who did a survey recently of 2,200 resources written in English, French, and German from 1975 to the present, which means it's modern scholarship dealing with the historicity of the life, death, and burial of of Jesus Christ. Many of these people um, that are doing the research are skeptics. They're unbelievers. We're not talking about 2,200 Christian scholars. We're talking about the best scholarship available. And there are a few things that pretty much all of them agreed on. Now, of course, there's going to be some differentiation, but there's a core group of things that all of them basically agreed on as they looked on this. And this is what I want to throw out there. They pretty much agreed that Jesus was an actual person, that the evidence is, in fact, completely in favor of of believing that Jesus actually lived. That not only did he live, but he was crucified. That he actually died on a Roman cross. And that they found his tomb empty. Believers and unbelievers pretty much agree there's overwhelming evidence to believe that Jesus was a real person. They died on the cross, that they found his tomb empty. Right? They also agree 
that the message of the resurrection was at the heart of the gospel from day one. People didn't start talking about the resurrection of Jesus 300 years after his death, burial, and resurrection. They started talking about it the day after it happened. It was at the heart of the message from the very beginning. They also agree that Christianity experienced explosive growth from the very place that the event took place. Jerusalem was the heart of the spread of early Christianity. It exploded in Jerusalem, the very place the death, burial, and resurrection took place. Where the eyewitnesses lived. When you read through the book of Acts, Luke describes him appearing to multiple people in and around Jerusalem after his resurrection, basically saying, there are eyewitnesses here. You can go talk to them. They're still alive. Okay? So Christianity didn't start growing you know, 300 years later, 3,000 miles away. It had explosive growth the day after the event at the very heart of the place where the event took place. The disciples went through a radical overnight transformation. When you read through the Gospels, man, they don't come out looking so good. I don't know if you've read the Gospels lately. We went through the book of Mark last year as a church, and it was a good time. And one of the things that you realize is that these guys were cowards. They argued. They were power-hungry. They were constantly making dumb choices. And when you read through the Gospel of Mark, what's interesting is, is Mark wrote the Gospel, but Peter was the primary source for it. Mark and Peter worked together at the end of their lives. And, and, and Mark wrote this gospel with Peter primarily informing him of the events. And guess who looks the worst in the gospel of Mark? Peter. He wasn't trying to make himself look good. He wasn't trying to spin the story. He was being radically honest about his own poor choices and misgivings. Why? Because he had nothing to prove and nothing to hide. And what's radical about that is when you look at that guy, that guy who was overconfident in himself, I'll never leave you. I'll die with you. And then somebody shows up with a club and he runs away into the darkness, right? And then Jesus is in kangaroo court over here and he's standing around the fire with all these guys and a slave girl looks at him and says, hey, I think you might be one of those Galileans. Weren't you one of those guys that hangs out with Jesus? He's like, no, he's like afraid. That's Peter, right? Peter who became one of the pillars of the early church. Overnight transformation. Went from a coward to being a bold proclaimer of the gospel, a herald, a messenger of the gospel. Not just him, all of them. All of them. Every single one of them went through this incredible overnight transformation where they went on a road of, 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 of just radical, and you're like, okay, well, they just agreed, right? Really? That wasn't an easy road. They were preaching the gospel in circles where the gospel was not being received in a friendly way. They were preaching it in Jerusalem and in the broader circle of Rome, both of which found Jesus threatening and alienating. And so they persecuted these guys at every step of the way. They were out there talking about Jesus and they were getting persecuted for doing so, right? And we know in, in some cases, the detailed stories of stoning, of, of, of being abused, of being driven out of cities, of physical abuse, of, of God miraculously having to deliver them, and each one of them eventually being martyred dying, painful, horrible deaths, some of them being crucified, some of them being burned. Peter choosing to be crucified upside down because he didn't feel like he was worthy to die in the same way Jesus died. Every single one of them going to the point of death and not recanting. I don't care how hard 
boiled of a conspiracy theorist you are, man. <laughs> You're going to have a hard time selling me on, on the idea that these guys agreed to lie about this, and every single one of them lived lives of suffering and died horrible deaths, many of them completely ignored at the time for a lie. Something happened that completely changed these guys. Something happened in that city that caused the message of the gospel to explode in growth. Something happened that changed the course of the world. One of the guys who became a follower of Christ, and, and this was one that I've just been thinking about this week, was a guy named James. He was Jesus' brother. He wasn't a Christ follower during his life. His family, in fact, um, felt threatened by Jesus. When Jesus was preaching, if you guys remember when we went through the book of Mark, there was a scene where, where Jesus' family basically comes and, and want to take him by the ear and drag him home because he's making a nuisance of himself, right? He's, he's going kind of crazy. And they're like, dude, you need to take some time off. We're just going to take you home, okay? And Jesus was like, mm, I don't think so, right? The people who believe in me, this is my family. And he rejected the authority of his family. His family didn't believe in him. His family was embarrassed by him and felt alienated by him. And, and in the gospels, not a single one of them become a follower. And yet James, his brother, becomes a believer after his death, burial, and resurrection to the point where he becomes the leader in the Jerusalem church and ends up laying down his life for his testimony for Christ. Radical stories of transformation that took place immediately after the events of the cross. You have to explain things like Orthodox Jews. The early church was predominantly Jewish, right? It was predominantly Jewish. And yet almost immediately you see this transition from them abandoning a Saturday Sabbath and moving to a Sunday day of worship. You're like, well, what's the big deal? What's the big deal? You're talking a millennia of tradition. You're talking thousands of years ingrained, culturally ingrained habits of worship changed overnight. These are not small things. Any one of them would be very hard to explain. What I'm saying to you is that the burden of proof isn't just on me, it's on you. If you don't want to believe that Jesus was raised from the dead, I get it, man. It's a hard thing to believe, but I'm telling you that it's not simply a matter of saying, well, I just don't believe that can happen. You have to find a rational way to explain the events surrounding the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. You need to be willing to do a little bit of heavy lifting. Here, in our culture, people are seen smart if they can come across skeptical. You notice that? If you can ask the right snide questions, then people just assume you're like really smart, which is the dumbest thing in the world. It's really easy to ask snide questions. It's really easy to make other people look dumb. It's really hard to engage this stuff with honest questions and really think it through. And I'm challenging you, don't just hide behind your intellectualism. Don't just hide behind your skepticism. Genuinely engage it. Ask some questions, right? Have some conversations and explore it because the burden of proof is on you, not just on me. And there are some great resources out there, some good books. Um, some are on bottom shelf reading level, um, and I don't mean that to be insulting at all. I love bottom shelf reading level, but stuff like Case for Christ by Lee Strobel, a guy who was an atheist who became a believer. You got other stuff like, like um, More Than a Carpenter, and then you get into the more advanced stuff. N.T. Wright wrote um, some books, um, one of which is, is honestly PhD level. If you're going to dig into it, it's, it's going to blow your brain. Um, and there's a lot of material out there that is worth reading and digging into. It'll challenge you and engage you and, and really 
force you to ask some questions. But I want to make one resource immediately available to you. Um, this is a book that we're going to make available. It's on our website. All you need to do is go to trailheadonline.org. Okay, very simple. On our homepage, we have scrolling um, banner ads or banner images. Click on the one that says raised. It'll take you to a page where you can download a book written by a couple friends of mine, um, really smart dudes, uh, and they're part of a group called GCD Ministries, and they've made this resource available, and it's called Doubting the Resurrection. And it's specifically geared toward helping people ask the right questions about the resurrection and spurring your thinking toward engaging the question in an intelligent way. It doesn't give you all the answers, but it definitely is something meant to engage you in a direction that will help you to ask the right questions and move toward the answers. So all you need to do is go to our website. There are instructions on there about how to click on it, download it, and and get that information, and it will take you to a free download. And we do have it in Kindle format. We have it in iBook format. We have it in PDF, whatever's going to be compatible with with your devices. All right, all that to say... (laughs) All that to say, we believe in the resurrection. And we don't believe in it in, in just, just, as just a metaphor of um, the triumph of love or the persistence of life. We believe in it as a historical reality. I think that is a rational and reasonable conclusion based on the evidence. And here's the deal. Since God demonstrated His strength in the resurrection of Jesus. That has a profound impact on the way Christ followers approach life. Because if he flexed his muscle, if he said a word and Jesus came back from the dead, do you really doubt his power to change your life? Do you really doubt his power to set you free? to transform your heart, to give you hope, to release you in joy. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead has been set loose in your life, Christ follower. We don't need to wander into the wilderness of life unprepared and ill-equipped. Because Jesus was raised from the dead, we have a hope that is greater than our challenges. But here's the deal. In order for us to stand in this strength, according to the text, We need to put on some armor. Take a look at the text with me. Uh, Verse 11, put on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Drop down to verse 13. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. What he's saying is that there's an evil day coming. And he's not talking eschatologically or like end times kind of evil day. He's talking about the evil days that just come from living in a sin-sick, broken world. I probably don't have to spend a whole lot of time trying to convince you that there's something wrong with the world. If you haven't seen that yet, you haven't been looking closely enough. Look beyond the four walls, right? We're incredibly isolated, insulated, and protected in our country. That is not the story of most people who live on the face of this earth. This is a hard place to live. It is a broken place to live. There's a lot of suffering and a lot of hurt. It is a, a, an evil day, and that evil day will visit all of us in some way at some time. We'll all suffer. And what he's saying is that we need to put on the whole armor of God that we might be able to stand when those challenges come. 
when those struggles hit. And those struggles are, don't mistake it, absolutely spiritual, right? We're not just talking about a downturn in the economy or, or an accident, right? We're talking about a broader picture, right? When we see, when we like, you know, when we have a small thing that goes wrong in our day, all we see is, you know, I hurt my toe or I, I lost some money or, or whatever it was, right? But there's a much bigger picture that God sees because when God created the universe, he created not just the physical world, the material world, but a spiritual world, right? And it only makes sense. If God could create a material world, he can create a spiritual world, right? And, and those two worlds interact. There's an interplay between those two worlds that we don't see and we don't fully understand, but we're part of a greater drama. We're part of a greater story. And there are times when the struggles in our life come to us, not primarily because we were in the wrong place at the wrong time, but because there are, in fact, greater things happening. There are things happening around us that are spiritually driven. We need to put on the armor of God because the challenges that we face are not challenges we can equip ourselves to deal with. So we have to put on the armor of God. Now, now that idea of the armor of God is obviously metaphorical, right? God is spirit, not body. So even if he had armor, where would he put it? And if he did have armor, I doubt it would fit us. You know what I'm saying? Like, he's a lot bigger. I don't know. Um, what does that mean for us to put on the armor of God? And, and, and how does it strengthen us? When you think about armor, isn't armor about protection? Isn't armor about defense? Right? You put on armor. And if anything, it makes you weaker. You think about those knights, man, the medieval knights are walking around like huge tin cans, right? And they get on the back of the horse and they're riding around and they just hope they didn't tip over sideways, right? Seriously, because they fell in the mud, man. They weren't getting up right? Because it didn't make them stronger. In some ways, it, it, it strengthened their defense, but it actually made them weaker on their own. So how in the world does this armor both protect and make stronger? Well, I think it'll help us if we understand the way armor was thought of in this period of time. And we can do that, honestly, by looking at some broader literature. There's a, um, a very famous work called the Iliad, the Iliad is a, a mixture of, of Greek history and Greek mythology. And that's how most of the literature during this period of time was written. They take real events and then they expand them, right? They take the heroes and they make them like children of gods. And, and they, they expand them to the point where like Achilles, the greatest hero, is superhuman in his strength, right? And, and, and you just see all of this taking place. Um, and, and in this, though, we can definitely see the way people thought during this period of time. It, in the Iliad... In book six, we see two warriors coming together in the middle of a war, Glaucus and Diomedes. And these guys are coming together to fight. And it's kind of cool the way that the passage, you know, it's like this aerial view of a battle. And then it zooms in like fisheye lens on these two guys. And everything else gets pushed back and quieted. And the war is taking place all around them. But it's like this quiet little space where they can have a conversation. And they realize while they're, they're getting ready to fight that their dads knew each other. That, that they actually have a family lineage together. And as they realize that, they're like, you know, we shouldn't be fighting each other because we're connected, right? So the way they showed that, it's interesting, is they did this. They exchanged pieces of their armor. Because the armor was more than just defense, it was identity. And when they changed pieces of armor, what they were saying, saying is we share an identity. We're one. We're not going to fight each other. And if you're going to fight one of us, you're going to fight us both. Because we share an identity. Now, one of the most powerful illustrations from, this, from the Iliad really does come from Achilles. Now, Achilles was... In, when you read through the Iliad, he is the greatest warrior um, in the entire epic story. And, and he, he fights for the Achaeans. The problem with Odysseus is that he acts like a middle school kid, 
I mean, honestly, he, he, he gets offended anytime somebody doesn't give him the honor, if he thinks somebody doesn't praise him highly enough, if somebody doesn't give him recognition, man, he just takes off his armor and he goes and hangs out in his tent naked and pouts while the battle's going on, right? For like weeks at a time, his, his army is losing and he's sitting in the tent just pouting. People come in, he's like, well, what do you want, right? And, 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 he's, and, and so the, the Achaeans are losing, the Trojans are coming down the hill. The Achaeans came in boats, and it's getting so close that if the Trojans get close enough, they're going to set fire to the ships. And if they set fire to the ships, the Achaeans are done. It's a slaughter from that point forward because there's no retreat for them. There's nowhere for them to go. And so Patroclus, who is uh, Achilles' best friend, comes into the tent. He's like, dude, you've got to come out and fight, man. This thing's almost over. And he's like, nah, I don't think so. He's like, well, I'll tell you what, let me wear your armor. Let me go into battle. Now, Patroclus was, was a strong guy, um, but he wasn't a warrior. Nothing in the story indicates that he was a warrior. He was, he was like the shield bearer for Achilles. He was, like the, he was his best friend, and, and um, there was nothing in there that indicated he had any great strength. But Achilles was like, all right, I'll tell you what, you can wear my armor. So Patroclus puts on Achilles' armor, and he goes out into the battle, and he kills 53 men. Why? Because the way they saw it, he wasn't just fighting in his armor, he was fighting in his spirit. He was fighting in the name and in the spirit of Achilles. He fought in the strength of Achilles. The armor wasn't just about defense, it was about identity. And the way the story moves forward is that the gods actually see this and they're like, okay, we got to do something about this Patroclus guy. And so one of the gods blinds him and, and gives Hector, who is the hero of the Trojans, an advantage. And Hector is able to basically take the armor off of him. And once the armor's off, they can kill him. Now, the story goes on. Hector steals the armor, and that makes Achilles really mad, and it gets interesting from that point forward. But um, the point is this, that the armor was way more than just defense. It was way more than just defense. And that's the way they viewed that, you guys. It was about identity. So when we're talking about putting on the whole armor of God, I want you to catch this. We're talking about putting on a new identity. We're not talking about just being a fan. We're talking about putting on the whole armor of God, you guys, preparing yourself for the battle. It means way more than just putting on a Christian t-shirt, sitting on the sidelines and yelling, yay, God. That's honestly how a lot of, a lot of religion approaches it, right? I'll just go and I'll sing the songs and, 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 and I'll say the right things and I'll pretend to be the right person and I'll put in my time and then God will owe me. But in the meantime, I'm really still just living my life in my own power, living my life in my own power for my own ends, pursuing my own goals, but I'm doing it kind of in the name of God. When we're talking about putting on the whole armor of God, man, we're talking about something much more than, than just being a fan, right? That, that means we can't follow Jesus like a middle-aged fat guy who's wearing a LeBron James jersey and watching the game. You know what I'm talking about? Like LeBron James, yeah, we won again. No, dude, you didn't win anything, right? You, just, you ate a pound of wings. Yeah, you, right? <laughs> just because you have on a LeBron James jersey doesn't mean you can go dunk, right? You're a fan, <laughs> you're not LeBron, right? We, we can't follow Jesus like that. We can't just put on the Jesus jersey and become cheerleaders for Jesus and say, oh yeah, well, I'm a Christian and then have it not impact your life. That's like pretending you have the equipment and then walking out without actually being strengthened for what's coming ahead. It doesn't make any sense and it's not gonna work. We need to put on the armor of God means we need to put on the identity of Christ. 
and who Christ says we are. Because in the end, you guys, we're either going to face the challenges of life in our own strength or in God's, in our own identity or the identity that God has given us in Christ, in our own armor or the armor of God. So whose armor are you wearing? Whose armor are you wearing? What do I mean by that? Well, let me ask you this. When, when, when things are going bad for you, where do you run for protection? When things are challenging for you, where do you run in your armor to be protected, to be shielded, to be strengthened? Let me unpack this a little bit and see if we can understand what I'm saying here. When I'm talking about your armor, I'm talking about the things you do that make you feel good about you. To make you feel strong. Nobody likes to feel weak. What do you run to, to hide behind? You ever, you ever have that thing where, where something goes wrong and you, you look kind of foolish and you feel kind of foolish and you hate that? And so what happens is in the back of your mind, and maybe you even say it sometimes, but in the back of your mind, you're like, well, at least I'm still good at X or YZ. You should have seen me when I X, Y, Z. You know, it's that little, little story in the back of your head that this isn't really who I am. This weak person that's here right now, this not really, I'm, I'm really this strong person over here. What's your armor? Where do you run to to hide? Where, where do you run to to be strengthened? It's going to be about something you can do. Something you can do that makes you feel good about you. Something you can earn, right? It's an achievement, that you accomplish. It's a medal that you wear. It's a, it's a, it's a, a medal, you know, like <laughs> we all have our little badges on our armor, the things about us that we've really feel good about ourselves, right? This could be, this could be honestly your job. You ask somebody, if you walk up to somebody, this is a really weird question, but if you walk up to somebody and say, who are you? A lot of times they're going to respond, well, <laughs> well, I'm Steve, right? What does that mean? Who am I? No, 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 no. Who, who are you? If I really to push you, who are you? A lot of times, the first thing you're going to go to is your job. My name's Steve, and I'm a lawyer. My name is Steve, and I'm, I don't know, a, a laborer. I'm Steve, and I'm whatever, right? We go to our jobs because our identity gets wrapped up in the success of what we do. And we, we start feeling good about ourselves, protected in many ways by what we've accomplished. I mean, we see this in professional sports all the time. How, how else do you explain a guy like A-Rod getting paid more than the entire Houston team in 2013. One guy getting paid more than, a, than an entire team. And what's funny is that every year, somebody has to up that. Somebody has to beat it. Somebody has to make more. Why are these guys in competition not just on the field, but in the bargaining office? I mean, does it really make that much difference? I mean, maybe it does. I, I haven't lived that lifestyle. $10 million a year, $15 million. I, You know, may, maybe... Maybe that makes a world of difference. I don't know. I can gold plate my toilet. Awesome, right? I don't know. I'm kind of thinking there gets to a point where it just doesn't make that much difference anymore. That's my thought, right? A little bit more money is just that much more money to waste, honestly. So why is it so important to these guys? Because it's not just about the money. It's about their worth. They're not fighting for money. They're fighting for their armor. Their armor says, I am worthwhile, I am valuable because I succeed. And how much you pay me proves how much I've succeeded. My success is my protection. And when you pay me more, it just makes me feel that much better about myself. It's one more badge I can put out to the world and just show to the world, look at me, I'm strong. 
right? Now, maybe you're not doing it on a professional athlete's level, but maybe you are doing it with, with how you succeed with whatever your job is. We do that all the time, right? Some of us, we do it with, with our families. Our families, honestly, are our personal shields. And you're like, well, wait a minute, Steve. Families are good things. Absolutely, they're good things. But do you realize that the problem is that we take good things and we try and turn them into ultimate things? That's what idolatry is. We're looking to things that aren't God to be God for us, to do for us what only God can do. See, idols are not bad things. They're good things that we try to turn into ultimate things. We do that with our families. Culturally, we worship family. We really do. It's the irony of our culture. We've waited longer and longer and longer than any generation to start families. And then once we have them, man, we reorient our, our entire lives around them, right? Our identity gets wrapped up in, in the success of our children. If my children succeed, I succeed. And we're more obsessed than any other generation with child rearing. We have parents that are just walking around plagued with guilt that they're not doing enough, right? They're, they're playing baby Mozart, and they're wondering if they're doing enough to help the intellectual stimulation of their children, right? They're, they're, they're exposing them to every kind of sport and craft activity growing up so that they can hopefully discover what they've been wired to do in the universe, but I still might fail, right? What is that narcissistic drive about? I'm going to propose to you, it's not about our kids. It's about us. When my kid succeeds, I succeed. It's my armor. It's what I hide behind. It's my strength. One of the most dangerous ways we can do this, and probably one of the most common, is when we do this with our religion. And the reason it's so dangerous is we're doing it in the name of God. And so pretty soon we mistake our work for God as God's work for us. And we stop laboring to rest in the work of the Lord, and we work really hard for the Lord to basically be able to push our resume across the table and say to God, you owe me. So we go to church, we put in our time, we pay our tithes, we, we do whatever our religious things are supposed to do, we try to obey whatever rules we think we're supposed to obey, and we do these things. We're doing them for the purpose of building our own religious armor. It's our strength, not God's. It's our performance, not God's. See, that's what all of these things have in common, is they're exertions of our strength. They're exertions of our ability. It's us trying to basically build an armor of our own identity that is going to make us stand and protect us. And here's the deal, you guys. It doesn't work. They all fail. And we all know it. And that's why most of us become hypocrites. Putting out an image of who we are while secretly we know we're not with that thing. Trying to be a bigger success, a more intelligent person, a more loving, whatever it is. Why? Because we're afraid that we're just not going to be strong enough. And in the end, we're not. <laughs> we're not. Right? That kind of identity is all about me saying, I am right because I do the right things. The biblical language behind this is, is us trying to establish our own righteousness. That's how the Bible talks about it. I'm trying to establish my own righteousness. My righteousness is my, my armor. I'm looking to it to protect me and keep me strong. And the problem is it's never good enough. It's like walking into Hell's Canyon with a two-liter soda and a bag of chips. 
and thinking you're going to be able to make it. It's not enough. You guys, listen to me. The King of Kings came. And instead of putting on his armor to make war and destroy, he took off his armor to die. As our substitute in our place for our sin. The God of the universe became man so that he could fully identify with us and live the life we should have lived without sin, without rebellion, without mistake. And then voluntarily, willingly enter into the death we deserve to die. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He was so fully identified with our sin that God crushed him, crushed him in judgment because he stood as a cosmic traitor before the sovereign judge of the universe, not because of his treason, but because of ours. And he fully drank the cup of God's wrath down to the bottom. There was nothing left. God was fully satisfied with the judgment. You know how we know? Because Jesus came back to life. The penalty of sin is death. If Jesus had not completely satisfied God in regard to our sin, he would have stayed dead. He came back to life showing that forgiveness is available that we have a champion who took on our greatest enemy, which was our greatest failure. He paid the greatest price, a price we could never pay. And he rose again, giving us a forgiveness we could never earn. And God is satisfied. So listen to me, you guys, listen. He took your sin to give you his righteousness, not to make you earn it, not to make you perform for it, not to make you jump through hoops for it, but as a free gift of grace. He took your defeat and he wants to give you his victory. He wants to take your soiled, deformed, broken, sinful armor of self-righteousness on him and pay the price for it and give you his righteousness as your new armor. His obedience for your disobedience, his glory your sin. He wants to give you his victory. And the only thing he requires of you is faith. He wants you to stop believing lies about him and telling lies about him. He wants you to believe in him and to trust in him and then to follow in trust, knowing that you have a champion who has won your greatest victory and is going to lead you to your greatest joy. guys, the armor of God doesn't do us any good if we don't put it on. And over the next several weeks, we're going to be looking, because Paul breaks the armor down into specific pieces, we're going to be looking at how we put on the armor of God in very practical ways in the coming weeks. But for this morning, right now, I want to invite you to the place where you're ready to put it on. Stop performing for God. 
Stop pretending to be something you're not. Stop trying to earn a resume to manipulate God into blessing you and realize he already has in Jesus. All you need to do is trust. Stop performing for God and start resting in his performance for you. You know, that's the only rational thing to do. (laughs) Jesus rose from the dead. He won your victory. And he invites you to rest in it. To find comfort in it. To find peace in it. To stop trying to stand in your own strength. To stop trying to build your own armor. He's alive. And he is here. And the one who died for you and the one who rose for you is inviting you right now into relationship because he loves you. And for some of you, that may be the first time you have ever taken a step of faith. Take that step. The invitation came at a dear price. And it's the greatest demonstration of love the universe has ever known. For some of you, it's a deeper step into a faith you already have. There are areas that you have refused to give to God. And you know what they are. The Spirit's bringing them to your mind right now. Fears that you have kept, ways that you've tried to protect yourself, ways that you still try to perform. You know the first step a lot of times? Very simply, in order to stop performing for God and start resting in God is just to come to a place where you can say thank you to God. Because in the end, that's really all you can do for what Jesus has done for you. You can't do anything to earn it, but you can thank God for it. You can let it birth in your heart the beginning of gratitude. And that gratitude will slowly work its way out, transforming you from the inside out because gratitude is the brother of faith. And when you're thankful to God, you will move forward in trust in God. So I invite you, respond.